Amen. Uh, well, as, uh, as Angelo said at the beginning, it is uh, the beginning of Lent this past Wednesday, Ash Wednesday, uh, began the season of Lent 40 days um, from uh, Wednesday until um, Saturday, the Saturday between Good Friday and Easter. Um, and if you count, it's actually 46, but Sundays don't count. Sundays are feast days. Um, so, uh, and I just wanted to, right off the bat, um, give, give you something. You know, I know you don't get a lot of recommendations for resources. I know there just aren't tons out there. But um, uh, Lent is a season that you might not be familiar with, or you just might be looking for something to kind of guide you through it. Um, this year, I, I'm, I'm reading through Esau Macaulay's book on Lent. It's just called Lent. Um, and as you can see, it's reasonable. Not going to take your whole life to read it. Um, so I just recommend that to you uh, as just a good guide through this season if, if, uh, if you're looking for something. Um, so, so Lent, uh, Lent is this time to reflect on our faith and the state of our soul before God. And, then, and it's also a time to repent as you reflect on the state of your soul from the way that you've maybe drifted from the Lord. Uh, and it's traditionally, and actually Esau will explain this in the book, it's a time for three groups of people. Uh, the first group, uh, traditionally in, in the church, it was a time for people who were, for the first time, coming to faith, uh, to, to consider their own, their own heart toward God and to be baptized at the end on Easter. Um, we, I, has anybody been to an Easter baptismal service before? Um, yeah, I guess it's kind of fallen, maybe a couple people, it's fallen out of uh, tradition, but uh, it's kind of a glorious idea, right? I'm just putting that out there in the atmosphere. Maybe, maybe that'll be something we do someday. Um, and so the first group would be for people who are coming to the faith for the first time or thinking about coming to the faith. The second group of people that uh, Lent is a call for is those who have been estranged from the church, uh, estranged from the body of believers. And Lent is a time for them to, to, to return back. It's sort of an open call to say, have you, have you been estranged for one re reason or another? Return back to the faith, return back to, um, to the body. And then the third group um, are, are for the rest of you. Um, you, you old heads in the faith, those of you who've been walking with the Lord for a while, um, it's, a, it's a continual annual time to reflect and to repent and, and to, to consider how you may have drifted from the Lord. Uh, and so, um, so with that in mind, we, uh, this is an excellent passage actually for us to, to think about three Lenten questions um, that you have in your outline. Uh, whom shall I follow? Where shall I go? And how can I endure? Uh, these are three questions for you to reflect on the state of your own soul and maybe where you've drifted from the Lord and where he's calling you back in this Lenten season. Uh, whom shall I follow? Where shall I go? And how can I endure? Um, and, and so uh, just kind of with that in mind, I'm going to read, read our passage for us this morning. Um, we are taking large chunks of Matthew and, and each, each Sunday. Uh, sometimes we'll kind of do a, we'll cover it all. And sometimes we certainly won't. We'll focus in on one or two verses. Um, but I'm going to read for you the passage starting uh, in chapter 3 uh, and ending in, in uh, chapter 4, verse 17. Uh, so, yeah, we're up there, okay. Uh, chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan. 
But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The ax is already at the root of the tree and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. Uh, just, just notice uh, the contrast there. Unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came to be baptized by John. Um, we'll get to that in a little bit more. Um, unexpected from, from verse 12 to verse 13. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After 40 days, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. And Jesus said, away from me, Satan. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. Then when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee, leaving Nazareth. He went and lived in Capernaum which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Nephtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Nephtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light and those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Amen. This is God's word. Um, and we will now do a word-by-word -word exegesis of the entire passage. No. Um, so what do we find here? Just, as I said, three questions. Whom should we follow? Where will we go? How can we endure? Um, this, this beautiful picture of Jesus' early life. And it really is that. It's, it's a first glance of Jesus um, out of his childhood. 
You know, we, we, get, we have this gap that we dare not go and try and pretend we know what, what, what took place in that gap. But, but just realize that you're, you're getting Jesus emerging to us out of, out of uh, childhood. Um, and he emerges as a solitary figure in, a will, in the wilderness. Um, he joins his fellow Jews seeking John the Baptist at the Jordan River out in the Judean wilderness. So, so you, if you have a cinematic view in mind, there's sort of a, you know, the, the, the heat is rising off the wilderness and you can see the desert landscape and here comes Jesus walking um, with others, you know, but, but sort of anonymous in a way. And he comes asking to receive the baptism of repentance. And, and this, as I tried to um, allude to it when, I, when we were reading, this completely catches John off guard. Uh, you can see, what, what, look, just go back, look at what John has been saying about Jesus. I bat, we've heard it so many times, it's like we just, you know, you just run by it. You're, you know, but listen, I baptize you with water for repentance. This is John speaking. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. Do you know of anybody that you would say that about? Like, that's quite a claim. I'm not even worthy to carry that person's dirty socks for them. Uh, and then, listen, he says, he will baptize you with Holy Spirit and with fire. He will baptize you with the Spirit of God and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor. He will gather wheat into the barn, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And I just, at first, it struck me for the first time, I think you're supposed to chuckle a little bit at what comes next in verse 13. This, this torrent of, of force and power and judgment is coming, and then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. It, it doesn't quite fit. Uh, John, John, what John preaches and how Jesus comes seem to be at odds. And so that, that makes sense then of verse 14, right? There's an understandable uh, hesitance from John. Um, he says, I need to be baptized by you and you come to me. So th there's an effect he's saying, I should be receiving from you, um, but Jesus switches places with him. Jesus comes to receive from, from John. Um, and and just, just to kind of picture this a little bit more, we don't know necessarily the mode of baptism that was used um, actually, if we did, I feel like it would solve a lot of problems, maybe for the church. Um, but, but I can tell you in my very limited experience, having been a part of two baptisms so far, um, th there's, there's something very intimate about a baptism in that somebody is putting themselves into your hands. You know, th there's sort of a vulnerability there. Um, when, we, when, we, when you baptize uh, by, by submersion, it's sort of like a trust fall, right, in a way. Um, except with water, with underwater. You're, you're sort of, you're submitting to a person. And with a child, I got to baptize my nephew. Um, you know, putting water on a child's head. <laughs> uh, parents are standing there saying, yes, yeah, sure, go ahead. Go ahead, put water on my, you know, on my child's head. There's sort of a vulnerability there. There's an acceptance there. Um, and, and that's what Jesus is saying to John. I am lowering myself before you, John. I'm, I'm here to receive the baptism of repentance um, because he comes holy as a human, just like us. Not that he needs to repent, understand. Not that Jesus needs to repent, but, but he's doing it to come show who he is. I'm here to take your place. I'm here to be in the place that you should be. And, and it's, just, it's just a remarkable point to think about, this is the character of the man that emerged out of obscurity. So think about it. 
Think about Jesus' early life. He, his life is under threat from the minute he's born. His people are oppressed from the minute he's born. Thousands of babies are murdered in search of him. And so you've got that sort of cocktail of trauma and horror. You've also got something about Jesus that we see early on. He's a, he's a genius. He, he defies the wisdom of all his elders. He knows far more than anyone else he's ever interacted with. So, you know, just put those two things together. Uh, you don't get a humble spirit. You get an angry, arrogant person. Right? Have you met anybody like a 16-year-old who's smarter than you are as an adult? Um, the, you know that the biggest challenge for that person will be their character. What kind of person will they grow up to be? Because they're already smarter than everybody they know. Th that's Jesus. And then you, you add in, he, he's growing up in a place where he has plenty of reason to be mad and hate the world. I mean, his people are, are under the boot of oppression. Uh, it actually made me think, if you, and I for, forgive me, because if you haven't seen it, this might not mean much to you, but if you've seen the, the, show, uh, the show Andor, um, Cassian in that show is very much who I would expect Jesus to be, an angry, bitter, <laughs> but and, and at the same time, self-righteous uh, man who's bent on his own ends. Not anything like what you see Jesus become in this moment, humbly submitting himself, saying, I will take your place. And, and so I, I, I think it's worth spending time on that because part of the call of the Lenten repentance is to see Jesus with fresh eyes, to see the person of Jesus, take off your theological grid for a moment, if you can, to get out of the water you're swimming in, which I know is an impossible ask, but just ask the Spirit to let you see him with fresh eyes. That's, that's what these early gospel chapters are really an invitation to, um, to see this man who emerges and he says, I will take your place, John. I will come and serve um, and serve you. So that, that's who we follow in these early chapters. You sort of have to suspend the rest of the story. Just look at this, this person who emerges. Uh, this is who we follow, this man who comes in such a way. Um, and then, so, so then where do we go? Um, Jesus is baptized the heavens open and the spirit descends on him as a dove. And you heard the voice that speaks audibly. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Uh, it is a breathtaking moment. It, there's, there's riches in here that we could spend lots of time thinking about. Um, but, but I actually, so this happens. There's, we could all sort of agree. A stunning moment. Uh, an amazing outpouring of God's spirit. It tells us so much about who God is and his relationship to the Father. And it's also a beautiful Trinitarian moment, right? If you're looking for, you know, the, the beauty of, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all working together um, in, in, in a sweet society. But, but, but what's sort of equally amazing is what happens right after it. Um, what immediately takes place next after Jesus receives this, this public blessing, um, you would expect something like he then begins to like sort of levitate out of the water uh, and, you know, the glory shot, you know, he's, there's this moment where, um, or he sort of marches to Jerusalem and, and, um, and begins to sort of glory in this, this identifying moment of who he is. That's, that's not at all what happens. The start of chapter one, I'm sorry, chapter four, verse one says, then Jesus, um, and in Mark's telling, you know, Mark is always immediate. It's immediately. Then Jesus 
uh, is led by the Spirit, the Spirit who just descended in this beautiful form upon him, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Thank you, Spirit. Uh, you know, right? And like, it, it's sort of a, it's, it's a quite, it's another contrast that we see uh, Matthew showing us. Then Jesus, verse one, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And I, and I would suggest to you that this is, um, if you've lived for a minute, you know actually that this is a law of the universe. Uh, that with, with baptism comes temptation and trial and tribulation. Uh, you, you throw baptism into the air and 9.8 meters per second, like a rule of gravity, it will land in temptation. It will land in difficulty. It will land in trial. It will lead to wilderness. And so Jesus is led by the Spirit. Um, he's led into the wilderness away from John. He's led away from public admiration. Think of the people that want to clamor around somebody that you see having had that happen to them. Uh, he's led literally away from water and away from food out into the wilderness. And he's pushed into opposition with the devil. And so um, just think about why that, that law is true. Uh, it's actually a simple point. The law is true. This is a truism because, uh, because evil is real. The devil is real. Um, I, I mean, you put it another way. Has, has anybody figured out how to unlock the trouble-free life yet? Has anybody found the secret? The, why not? Because the devil is real. Evil in the world is, 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 uh, is real. And, um, you, you know, you, you find things out, right, as, as, as you live. You know, I found out this week that when you reach your 40s and you just go play a full-court basketball game for 60 minutes without any stretching or exercise, like, you find out about something about yourself. Um, your body speaks to you. Um, and and this is, this is some, something of the same that we're finding with Jesus here. Uh, John and Jesus, you notice that bookend, the beginning and end of this passage, they come announcing a kingdom of heaven, uh, a kingdom of God. It's the same thing. What Matthew's doing is, is sort of, um, he's leaning toward his Jewish audience and avoiding the word God and, and, and saying it. But don't get confused by that. In the other gospel accounts, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, same thing. Kingdom of heaven, they're announcing this kingdom. Um, and so what you, what, part of what you see through Jesus' life is the kingdom of evil rising up in response. Right? If another sports town came into, a sports team came into Philadelphia and was like, you guys got to follow these guys, the Eagles fans would be crazy. Right? They would be up and up. You would see them flood the streets. It's the same effect. Kingdom of heaven is announced as present, and the kingdom of evil rises up and says, no, no, no. We're going to have our say about this. That's what you're seeing in Jesus' life, and that's what you see in this moment. So when the Spirit comes to dwell in a person or in a place, they will run into evil and temptation and trial. Not, not, as James reminds us, not that God tempts us, but that when the Spirit leads you, you will confront evil. And, and I, I just want to um, stay here for a moment. We're going to stay on the devil for a little bit longer, which I know is really everyone's real comfortable with that. Um, but part of the reason is because it is so uncomfortable, right? Um, as, as sort of modern secular people, um, and, and I don't mean to offend you, you're, you're in this, the water of secularism. You can't help it. If you, if you want to get out of it, I'm sorry, you can't. Uh, it's just the air you're breathing. It, part of one of, the, one of the great sort of 
beliefs that we, as Christians, we sort of wince about sometimes is talking about these things, evil, the devil. Um, and and it's worth, so it's worth staying for a moment um, to think about because the Bible teaches it and we see Jesus confront uh, it in this passage and throughout the Gospels. Uh, and so we need to deal with our, our wiring to dismiss it because, because, when, because, and the real payoff is that if you sort of dismiss these, these visions of the devil, Jesus becomes a little thinner when you read those gospel accounts. It's sort of like, well, it's, I mean, it's not, you know, is this really happening? Is this, it's so, so it's important that we, that we have an understanding of this. Um, and so one of the ways uh, I, think, I think Tim Keller and, and others I've read have, have attempted to demonstrate the reality of the devil. So I'm going to just try and convince you of the devil for a moment, if you don't mind. I think it's important. Um, it's is just to ask you to do the work to how else do you account for um, the, the sophisticated, intelligent work of evil in the world? How do you make an account for that? Um, because, uh, because fear and deception and violence and hatred actually don't come dressed up like an evil villain in the movies. It actually is not the way that we see evil mostly in the world. Uh, we mostly see it actually through the complex daily um, sort of run-of-the-mill tasks that we interact with every day. That's actually where evil is more baked in, right? It's a complex, almost intelligent system, uh, use that word, right, in the world that we face, in your life, in your own heart, um, and in the world. Um, in, in, uh, in 1961, uh, some of you might know the writer uh, Hannah Arendt. Um, she, she reported on, uh, in the New Yorker, she reported on the trial of, uh, of Adolf Eichmann. Uh, any, anybody, anybody familiar? Adolf Eichmann um, was, uh, was a Nazi operative, uh, and his responsibility was f to, to organize the transportation of millions of Jews um, around Europe, um, both for their displacement and, and, and then, of course, to various concentration camps for the, for the Nazi final solution. And, and Eichmann is, in, is sort of an interesting character in, this, in thinking about evil and the presence of the devil in the world because he, he had a hand in, in slaughtering millions of people without ever raising a weapon. Uh, he, he was actually a, sort of a brilliant bureaucrat and he was really great at logistics. And that actually was the means by which he, he brought evil into the world and the displacement of millions. Uh, and, and so Aaron's uh, reporting actually on it was really controversial. And it remains so today because of the way she described this man who, he's a Nazi. So, so your immediate, what you want to hear is this man is just spitting, seething evil. That, that's, that's what we expect. Uh, and this is what she wrote after, after reporting on the trial. Um, and I think that it's, a, it's in your outline. Uh, she said, I was struck by the manifest shallowness of Eichmann, which made it impossible to trace the uncontestable evil of his deeds to any deeper level or roots or motives. The deeds were monstrous, but the doer, at least the very effective one now on trial, was quite ordinary, commonplace, and neither demonic nor monstrous. And of course, you can see... Uh, it, it offends our ideas because how could somebody who has done what he's done not be called demonic or monstrous in, in, uh, in her eyes? Um, and, and actually, what I would suggest to you 
is that what she's observing is precisely what we're talking about here. That what she couldn't quite name about the commonplace ordinariness of Eichmann's evil was the work of the devil and the demonic powers of this world. Uh, it, it's an intelligent, sophisticated evil in ordinary commonplace ideas of an ordinary commonplace man in an office. He didn't see with evil, but he participated with, with it. So the devil is real, and the devil is at work on our ideas about ourselves and about each other and about God. And so just as, as a last sort of salvo in this, um, it's instructive to us that the Spirit doesn't send Jesus to challenge the Roman authorities. The Spirit doesn't send Jesus to, uh, to go and uh, challenge a centurion uh, as the face of evil. The Spirit sends Jesus to challenge the father of lies in the wilderness. That's, that's where evil rests in the world. That's the source of it. So, um, so where will you go with this? How is this helpful? You might be asking yourself. Um, uh, I, I think on uh, just a couple of things real quick um, before we get to our last point. Um, you, the presence of your wrestling with evil in your life is not a mistake. Um, you're wrestling with evil in your own heart and in your world and in your workplace and in your school is not because you haven't prayed hard enough it's not because you don't have the right biblical knowledge. Um, it's not because you haven't uh, done enough good deeds. Uh, you are fighting evil in the world because that's the nature of being a person who follows Jesus. And so some of you, I think, have some shame or guilt about how much you wrestle and how much struggle you might have in particular right now in your own household um, or in your workplace. And there is something to uh, just affirming yourself of, no, no, that's exactly where the spirit will lead us and maybe that's a strange comfort but I think for some of us it, it's a good one you're, it's not because you're doing something wrong evil is present in the world and you're actually there to fight that evil and to do battle with it um, and, and then secondly of course um, the, the knowledge of that uh, leads us to become a more desperate people. Uh, I cannot take on the sophisticated powers of darkness in the world by myself. And so your, your prayer life will reflect your, your understanding of evil. If you have a small view of the devil and the evil power at work in the world, um, you will pray small, uh, shallow, infrequent prayers. If, if, you, if you see and believe and understand what Jesus confronts here, your prayers will grow more desperate. They'll grow more desperate um, and likely more frequent and probably more mumbling and, and spittering and stumbling about what just to ask for. But that's, that's the desperation that you'll have. So, so that's, that, that's the, uh, the second invitation to Lent. Whom shall I follow? Where shall I go? And then finally, how can I endure? Um, we, we can learn how to endure in this fight um, by seeing how Jesus is tempted. Uh, so if you notice, uh, and this is, this is worth your time and attention, but uh, Jesus is temp tempted in, um, in a way that doesn't actually center on the deed itself. So uh, if it, you'll notice in verse 3 and in verse 6 most explicitly, notice how Jesus, uh, the devil leads off the temptation. If you are the son of God, uh, then do this. 
And so actually the temptation is not the deed itself, uh, the suggestion to make bread or to show impressive power or to receive this great wealth. Um, These enticements are actually wrapped up in an idea um, or around an idea, I should say. It's a little bit like if you've ever gotten a box of chocolates that has lost the guide, you know, that tells you what things are. This is a perilous endeavor, right? What is that, that chocolate? Um, and you happen upon the one for me with the gross cherry in the middle. I don't know who likes those. I don't know why you're cons- Oh, see, the devil is real. It's not even right. But that, that is, that is what, what, what's happening here. The, the, um, you, you think you're getting a chocolate, but inside, right, of these temptations is the toxic idea. Whatever that feeling is for you, it's the toxic idea. Um, you're not who God says you are. God is not who he says he is. It's the idea, it's the truth that the devil wants to distort. Um, and the act itself is actually just the after effects of that. Um, and I'm, I'm growing fond of quoting Dallas Willard likes to say that um, Satan didn't hit Eve with a stick, he hit her with an idea, right? Um, it, it's these toxic ideas that the devil uses to try and dissuade Jesus from what he just heard. What did Jesus just hear as a voice from heaven? You are my son. I am well pleased with you. And what does the, temp- the devil lead with? Are, is that really true? Are you really God's son? Are you really, and, and that, that actually, what the father says is actually a combination of Psalm 2 and, and Isaiah 42, which we don't have time to get into, but, but he's really, he's not just saying I'm pleased with you. He's, if you look back at the context of those two, those two passages, he's saying you're, I'm delighted in you as both king and suffering servant. He's saying so much about who he is in that little phrase. And Satan goes right after it. Is it really true? And then, and then so, so the, the temptation is just forsake who you are, Jesus, and I'll give you all that you could desire. Just forget who you are and you'll have everything you, want, you could want. And then how does Jesus endure? How does he resist? Um, well, when, when you understand what the devil is doing, what we just said, um, you realize that it isn't just that Jesus was a genius, that he knew the scriptures inside and out that actually help him endure. It, I mean, it wasn't only that, it helps to live and breathe scripture. <laughs> it helps uh, and it's important and it's, it's life-giving. Um, but but what, is, what is the message? How do, what, what was really, what helped Jesus endure? What message did he go preach right after this? He said, he declared the kingdom. He, rem- he knows who he is. Uh, he's a king, he remembers, I'm a king declaring a kingdom. He doesn't use the scriptures as kind of a tool for an argument with Satan. Um, he's, he's delighting in the words of his father. And that's how he endures. He knows who he is. And they save and protect him. So, um, brothers and sisters, how are you going to endure then? What's, what's left for you here to learn from Jesus? Um, the, the scriptures teach us that when, when you come to Christ, the same spirit that descended upon Jesus um, is, is, is upon you. And that same spirit declares adoption to you. That adoption, it it affirms you, it identifies you, it tells you who you are, the same spirit. 
So if, if the central way evil comes at us is through our ideas about yourself and about God, then you can endure hardship. You can endure the present evil by your assurance of adoption. You are not an orphan. The spirit at your work in you will let that ring out through your entire being so that you can overcome evil. Uh, Galatians 4, 6 says, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts and that spirit calls out, Abba, Father. And uh, just um, by way of closing, um, we're getting there. Uh, I just want to, you know, most of the temptation you'll face will not be um, like, the, the, like the Matthew account. Um, no one is likely going to go out into the parking lot and find the devil there waiting for him um, or her. I hope not. Um, but, but most of it is like these, just, these, these little narrow nudges day by day, these little temptations that are at us. And so just, can I just give you one example in which I, I stepped into adoption out of, out of the evil temptation uh, that I face. Um, I, was, I, was, uh, I was setting up to meet somebody at a coffee shop and, um, and no one here, by the way, so don't worry. Um, and, uh, and that person didn't show up. I should have said, yeah, no one here, don't worry. I'm not, if, you, if you ghosted on me, I'm not calling you out right now. Um, but, but that person didn't show up. But for some reason, and I couldn't get a hold of them texting, you know, I don't know, something came up, right? But, um, but for some reason, I, it was important to me that that person knew that I had waited for them. <laughs> and and, um, and I needed that person to recognize that I had done the thing that was supposed to be done and they had failed me. Um, and so here's where my mind went. And this is like one of those things I'm gonna regret confessing later on. <laughs> but I actually began to plot out how I could leave evidence of my being there so that when they showed up, they would see that I was there. Now, just think about like what kind of Sick mind has to do that. I thought about like making sure the chair was ajar just so. And then I even thought like, well, how can I leave evidence of my name? You know, there's no way it could not, like it would be somebody else. Now, I, I do, I invite you to think with me, what kind of heart and mind thinks in that way? And, and I will tell you that as I've thought about it, that, that is the mind and heart of somebody who's an orphan. I, I am abandoned in the world, and so I will scurry around all the scraps of things that can help protect my reputation and who I am. To the point that I will tamper with evidence, right? Don't trust me around a crime scene. I will arrange things so that people will believe something about me that's not true. And, and, so, and so we're all kind of like that, right? We all live as orphans. Maybe your desperation comes out in different ways. Your heart and mind goes to different kinds of things. Um, but I can't overcome this by myself. I can't leave my orphan skin by myself. But by the spirit of adoption, because the Holy Spirit is willing to be poured out upon me and call me his own, um, then, then I, can, I can forsake my, my evidence-tampering ways. I can cease to manipulate the world and live in that joy. And so, um, so um, the worship team can come forward. Um, so just, just to go back, as the, those three groups, if you're, if you're questioning, um, if you're considering faith, if you don't have faith and you're here today, um, think about that person I introduced you to in the first point. If you don't believe him to be true, would you at least want that to be true of somebody? Would you at least want somebody to be that gentle and lowly of heart? 
And that, there's your beginning point. Um, for, if you're here today and you're in that second group, you're estranged from the church for one reason or another. Um, likely what's come with that is some estrangement from the scriptures and a, and a, a sense of cynicism about the, the scriptures. And so I would just invite you to go back to verse 17. Here's the way you can repent during Lent. Allow your heart to believe the, the words that Jesus was, was, was told. You are my son, you are my daughter whom I love. With you I am, with you I am well pleased. That's your repentance if you've been estranged. Come back and believe that to be true of you. And then finally, for, for those of you who, who, have, who are around, who are here, who are, who are week to week walk, trying to walk in faith, um, I would just invite you in this Lenten season uh, to fast. And I'm trying to help you out because Jesus is going to talk about fasting in a minute and I always get real guilty when that happens. Um, but, but actually do a fast from food. Uh, pick a meal each week and fast from it. Don't do this content fast. I mean, you can do that too. But see, when you fast from food, you, you notice your, your desires and your longings. And so the, the repentance fast for you is, do I really long for and desire my adoption? Do I really savor it the way that I savor a meal? And, and, and let that, let that, that sink, sink into your heart through adoption. Let me close this in prayer. Um, take, Lord, and receive all our liberty, all our memory, all our understanding, all our entire will, all that, that we have and call our own. You have given it all to us, Lord. To you, Lord, we return it this morning. Everything we have is yours. We say, do with it what you will, Lord. Give us only, give us only your love and your grace. That will be enough for us, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.